0: Okay, so it's uh, an honor and a pleasure this morning to introduce Padma Vajra, who's going to be giving us the talk on the Guru and the Darkini. Um, Just a bit of background, because I'm aware that for some of you, this is your first going for refuge event, and you might never have been to Padmaloka uh, or met Padma Vajra. Uh, So just so you know a little bit more about him. Uh, Padma Vajra was ordained at 19, and I believe in Brighton at the time. Uh, and after Brighton spent... What? I was in London. Oh, London, London then, then. Yeah. but you came across the darling Brighton. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was partly right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep chipping in if I get this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, ordained at 19 and then in London, uh, helping with the LBC building project. Yeah. <laughs> just carry on I'll, I'll just go on. I won't yeah, interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, I know after that he spent time in Croydon but there were also two periods where Padma Vajra was in India helping to uh, get the movement up and running there and communicating the Dharma there and here he's been now for 30 years I think, so around 1990 uh, Padma Vajra came to Padmaloka uh, from India to join the ordination team and he's been doing that now uh, for 30 years uh, helping men to prepare to join the order, uh, communicating the Dharma. He's also, of course, a, a private preceptor and a public preceptor, so part of the Public Preceptors College. Uh, he's overall Mitra convener for the UK and Europe. For men only. For men only. Uh, so he holds a lot of responsibility uh, and has done for many years now. Um, but I said it was an honour and a pleasure to introduce Padma Fatra. It's an honour because... For me Padma Vajra is my private preceptor and I just feel like he's given me so much uh, dharmically in terms of guidance and instruction uh, and even my name Uh, so I've got a lot to feel grateful to Padma Vajra for uh, in that respect so it's a real honour to be able to introduce him Uh, but it's a pleasure because Padma Vajra has also just become a really good friend uh, and I always appreciate his company and enjoy his company. Uh, Padma Vajra is the kind of person who's got so many qualities and those qualities run so deep that it's always easy to introduce him and find either new things to say or to say the same things again but from a slightly different angle. Um, and, and this morning I thought I would just rejoice by way of introduction in Padma Vajra's communication. And so I, I talked last night in the introduction about communication and how what we're aiming for in the Dharma life is uh, uh, what Bhante described as a vital mutual responsiveness. So that kind of quality of communication, responsiveness to each other, uh, where we can really explore the spiritual world together. Uh, And I've always felt personally that with Padma Vajra, he makes that accessible, makes it easier to do that in terms of his guidance, uh, but also his encouragement, his support, uh, and his inspiration as well. So I find in communication, Padma Vajra is very honest and open uh, about himself and his life, and how his Dharma life has unfolded and shares his inspiration very fully uh, which of course makes it easier uh, for other people to also discover their own sources of inspiration uh, and get more in touch with them. Uh, So that's true for me and I'm sure it's true for uh, hundreds of other people uh, as well. They've enjoyed that communication with Padma Vajra. I think even people who haven't personally met him or connected with him have also benefited from that quality. So Padma Vajra must have given thousands of Dharma talks in those years that he's been an Order member. Uh, And he's continuing to do that. He's been in a rich vein of giving Dharma talks in recent uh, weeks and months. Uh, So you'll all probably know over the course of the lockdown he's given a series of talks on the Bodhicary of a series of 50 short talks, the Garland of Red Lotus Flowers. He's just about to begin a new series of short talks uh, lightning Flashes from the Blue Beyond, I believe it's called, uh, looking at Padmasambhava and the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. Uh, but I know as well through Zoom, he's also been giving talks in India, Brazil, uh, Mid-Essex and other places as well. So really, in a sense, traveling the world through Zoom, uh, pouring out the Dharma and giving the Dharma. Uh, so I'm sure we're going to get another fantastic talk this morning on the Guru in the Darkenee. Uh, so, a round of applause for Padma Bakran.
1: <laughs> Brothers in the Dharma, uh, it's, it's very, uh, I feel very happy to be here this morning, and sitting, as you know, in the Padmaloka Shrine Room, surrounded by the Padmaloka community. Um, and that's very important uh, for you who, who aren't able to be here, uh, to know that this is coming from Padmaloka. Uh, I may be the voice um, sitting here, but um, you know this wouldn't be happening. I wouldn't be able to speak, uh, I wouldn't be able to communicate without the Padmaloka community. And I don't mean just all the technology and the infrastructure, I mean spiritually. Uh, I wouldn't be able to communicate. You know, that, that, that what I do um, in, in terms of communicating the Dharma very much comes out of living this life, living in this life. I was a bit late this morning because I was having a really, really important, really good communication with Sacharaja who's just returned from being away, and you know, we were, we were into something. So, um, um, and we wanted to just. Finish that off very, very positive, creative communication. So, my apologies for starting a bit later. My apologies to the rest of the community, but it is important because you know that's how we live. We live in friendship, we live in community, and I think that's very important when we talk about the Guru and the darkening. I mean, it's said that the darkening is the esoteric, the guhya aspect of or, or dimension of the Sangha refuge. This is an idea that comes from Tantric Buddhism. The Darkani isn't, if you like, one figure, um, and in a sense, although she appears as a female archetype, she isn't really female in a sense. Uh, Bhante has spoken of the dharkini as the way in which, and in which, and through which, we communicate within the spiritual community, with complete honesty, uh, with one another, delighting in the Dharma together, inspiring each other, in the Dharma together. So it's very important to uh, appreciate that when you're, when you're listening to talks like this via this, this wonderful technology. This is coming out of Padmaloka. Uh, it's coming out of the Padmaloka shrine room, this room filled with wonderful images, this, this shrine that, that's still in creation filled with and filling up with uh, the images, the icons which communicate the archetypes the transcendental archetypes, we're not talking about Jungian archetypes, the the transcendental archetypes, archetypes in a more medieval sense perhaps, uh, all those aspects of the qualities of of Buddhahood, which are absolutely indispensable to contemplate for the awakening of faith and inspiration and devotion. And this uh, weekend, uh, and it was Satcharaja, I think, who suggested the title of this weekend, the Guru and the Darkani is to do with a new painting uh, that arrived in the Shrine Room a few weeks ago. Uh, Padmasagra mentioned this last night. A red dancing female figure, a darkani, Vajrayogini, uh, the Adamantine Yogini. She is a gorgeous, deep red. Uh, Aloka has found a red, or created a red. He didn't find it, he created a red. Well, found and created, which he said, uh, you know, had a tremendous uh, effect on his consciousness. Um, A tremendous, deep and rich red, and she's luminous against an equally extraordinary, gorgeous blue. Um, She's absolutely fascinating. She's naked. She has long black, dishevelled hair and bone ornaments. She has a skull bowl in front of her full breasts filled with red nectar, with rakta, with blood, which is also amrita, the deathless nectar. She holds a vajra flaying knife, like a sort of chopper with a vajra handle and a trident with severed heads and other things. She has a garland of severed heads and she's trampling on a crouching green sort of humanoid, reptilian figure. Uh, and she's turning. It's a very, very unusual painting of a darkening. I've never seen a painting of a darkening like this. She's turning, looking upwards with her three eyes in adoration, looking up above her to the Guru, Guru Padmasambhava, who sits very serenely. This form of Padmasambhava is in cross-legged, adamantine posture, his face full of tenderness and compassion. Uh, And within this painting, around this painting, there are wonderful lotus blossoms blooming. So it's a wonderful and mysterious arrival in our Shrine Room. It's unlike any other painting here. All of the paintings are unlike each other, but she's very, very different. Brings in an entirely different dimension. So why is she here? Why has she arrived? I mean, we don't, um, you know, we, we don't do these things for sort of novelty value. The emergence of paintings in the Shrine Room has always been organic. Um, we, we sit round with Arloka and mull over things and things emerge and, you know, as Arloka says, this is a completely collaborative endeavour. He's the paintbrush, as it were. It's a bit more than that. but. Um, you know, it definitely comes out of the, the community. And so, why is she here? Why has this painting emerged? And this particular darkening with Padmasambhava above her head depicts uh, the practice of Guru Yoga that Bhante was given in the early 1960s, one of the foundation practices. And he was taught how to do this practice by and Pache, a great disciple of another of Bhante's root guru, Jamyankenshi Rinpoche. A Bhante translated uh, the practice um, with the help of Dada Rinpoche, another of his teachers. And he transmitted this practice to the order, uh, I think he started to transmit it in around 1976, around the time I was ordained. And he describes this practice in uh, the lecture, The Symbolism of the Cosmic Refuge Tree in the Archetypal Guru from the lecture series, the, the, the Creative Symbols of the Tantric Path to Enlightenment, which, which are well worth listening to, not just reading in the book. I was talking to a Dharmacharini the other day, Dara, and she was saying, she was listening to his Banti's lecture on the stupa from that series. She said, it's really extraordinary, the energy, of the communication is, is, is really quite extraordinary and, uh, you know, people don't quite realize this about Bhante when he was a younger man, you hear it in the lectures, but the energy of the communication, the energy and the inspiration and the vitality of the communication, you know, our movement, our order comes out of that. It comes out of that energy and it's very important to, uh, to remember that. So in this lecture, I'm going to read to you how he describes this practice. I won't read the whole description because it's quite long. And this concludes his lecture on the the Archetypal Guru. So this is what he says. One begins with a transformation. One transforms oneself. One transforms oneself into a mass of light. One feels, one imagines that one is nothing but light that one's body, one's bones, flesh, blood, marrow, skin, heart, mind, thoughts, are all transformed, transmuted into pure, brilliant, blazing light, a massive light. And this light gradually assumes a certain form, assumes the form of a figure, an image known as Vajrayogani, assumes that it's to say a beautiful female form, whether the disciple is here male or female, doesn't matter. The disciple assumes, having transformed himself or herself into a mass of light, assumes this beautiful female form, brilliant red in colour, and naked except for ornaments of human bone, and this beautiful red naked female figure, which one has become, which one now is, which one feels oneself to be is surrounded by a halo of rainbow-coloured light extending in all directions. And he comments on this. The assumption of the female form here is significant. It suggests receptivity to the Guru's influence. The disciple is, as it were, especially at the time of initiation, female in relation to the Guru. And red, of course, in tantric tradition, is the colour of love, pure, brilliant red, the colour of love, of passion and of fascination. And the nakedness of the figure represents sincerity and openness and freedom from all disguises. And the ornaments of human bone represent renunciation, freedom from attachment, fearlessness in the face of death and so on. And he goes on to describe the other elements of the visualisation, how above your head you visualise your own guru, then above your own guru, Guru Padmasamava, then the eleven-headed and thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, representing absolute compassion, and finally Amitabha, the ultimate uh, guru of the Dharmakaya. And then how you invoke uh, these gurus, you invoke their blessings upon you, and you make a tremendous entreaty that you are going to follow with their blessing the path to reality, the the hard-cutting path to the non-dual reality itself so that you will gain enlightenment and so that you will then serve all living beings. You will do everything you can. You will emanate so many forms of yourself for the liberation of all beings. That's what you do in at the beginning of this practice and uh, I won't go on to describe the practice, perhaps we'll see how it concludes at the end of this talk. But I remember when Bhante explained this practice, evoked this practice, I was just listening on, probably on a reel to reel tape in the the then Brighton Buddhist Centre Shrine Room, uh, a long time ago, a different centre in those days. It had a very, very profound effect upon me. I was probably only about 17 when I heard this lecture and I formed a very strong aspiration that I would one day take up this meditation practice. It seemed to be describing uh, the kind of Dharma life that I longed for, the Dharma life that I was really searching for, a life in which you were connected with the lineage, the lineage that descends from the transcendental into your world, uh, the hierarchy, a very positive spiritual hierarchy that you were a part of and you could be positively connected with. It described devotion, it described faith, it described intensity, yearning, longing, it described blessing, initiation, and eventually union because the practice concludes with the union of you, the blending of you as Vajrayogini with all. The starting with Amitabha and coming down to your own teacher. And eventually I did indeed, not long after being ordained, take up this practice myself. An extremely rich practice. You really feel that the whole of the path to enlightenment is in this practice. And over the years I've done a few, led a few retreats, been involved in a few retreats where this practice has been the central practice. And the last one, that I did, or one of the last ones I did, was while Bhante was still alive at at Addisthana and uh, I went to see him uh, before the retreat to get his blessing uh, to do the practice and I recited to him the liturgy of the practice. He sat there listening to me reciting the liturgy of the practice and as I recited he became very absorbed in meditation, holding a, a a ball of of thread that i wanted to use as a sort of blessing thread within the retreat he became very absorbed indeed and at the end of the uh, of the recitation he he took a lo- rather a long time to emerge from meditation handing me this this ball of of blessing thread and he said how happy he was that this practice was being performed at Adisthana, how, how pleased he was that we were doing that practice together. But you might be wondering, those of you who who have asked for ordination, uh, perhaps even, if, if even perhaps some of the order members listening, might be wondering what relevance does this have to you, particularly if you are a man training for, for ordination. What are we talking about here? What is this evoking and communicating um, the image, the imagery of the darkening of Vajrayogini and the Guru, Guru Padmasambhava, that, that the images are very very vivid indeed, some might even say they're rather exotic images from a very very different culture, a very 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 different uh, world. Um, what then are these images communicating to us? What are they Evoking for us. In some ways, the images are sort of problematic. Let's just take this word guru, the word guru. And of course, the word guru really does have a bad press. Um, The word guru can be associated with an authoritarian cult uh, leader with a lot of charisma and who demands obedience and uh, exploits. Uh, their followers. Well, of course, we don't mean guru in that sense at all. That's not the meaning of guru in in Buddhist tradition. Uh, I know Banti himself uh, gave a wonderful lecture actually called "Is a Guru Necessary?" So a wonderful Dharma lecture. If you haven't heard it, it's 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 you know it's full of uh, uh, teachings and insights on the nature of the Dharma and the nature of Dharma communication. But he said that he tried to, sort of, tried to sort of, in a way, revive a positive meaning for the word guru, but he felt that, you know, that, 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 that had failed. So, and uh, this was in a, a talk called My Relation to the Order. He said, you know, the sort of language of guru perhaps, you know, doesn't really sort of, uh, can't, can't be sort of saved perhaps in some ways, except perhaps archetypally. Well, I'll go into that later. We don't mean guru in any of these negative senses. So do be aware of that. Uh, guru, by the way, can simply mean teacher. Um, but but do be aware we're using the term guru in a particular way. Darkening uh, can also be badly misused. I mean, the way some people use it, it can sound like a sort of pseudo-spiritual girlfriend. Um, well, a pseudo-spiritual girlfriend has nothing to do with the darkening. She can be presented variously by Western, usually Western Buddhist academics, as a sort of wild woman, a kind of feminist icon. She's none of these things. This, this is a very worldly interpretation of the dharkini. The guru and darkani, by the terms guru and Darkani, we're not talking about any particular individuals or any particular people. We are using symbols, and images communicating spiritual, even transcendental principles necessary for Dharma life, for anybody's Dharma life. Um, they are depicted in these very, very uh, powerful, vivid images. But you know we have to sort of discover and discern through those, yes, the if you like the wordless or even the wordless principle, and we're going to try and find words, the wordless spir- spiritual principle or transcendental principle or energy that they're, that they're communicating. Although they're not associated with particular people, you can say that they do represent a spirit that ideally should pervade the entire spiritual community, that should pervade the practice of individuals who are going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, That's the way I'm going to explore them. Of course, these these images of the Guru and the darkening occur in the Vajrayana or the Mantrayana, Buddhist Tantra, but I'm not going to be exploring (coughs) them exclusively in those terms. I want to explore their more general significance. You could say that the Guru is the archetypal Guru or Teacher. And the darkening is the archetypal disciple or devotee. Contemplating the qualities of these symbols, these archetypes, we learn things about the Dharma life. In particular, how to live the Dharma life more fully, more completely. How we can go for refuge more wholeheartedly, more completely, more fully. So let's have a look, first of all, at the darkening. I want to go that way round. Well, we have to be careful with the meaning of the word for a start. In general Indian usage, a darkening is a flesh eating ogress. Uh, if you were to use the word darkening, in, uh, for example, in Maharashtra state, people will think you're talking about a sort of ghoul, you know, a, a very, very unpleasant sort of ghostly uh, revenant that, 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 that will feed off of, of human flesh. There wouldn't be any association with the Darkani as uh, the ideal devotee or disciple. In modern Bengali, apparently, Darkani can mean a prostitute. So be very, very careful if you're in Bengal and you're talking positively about the Darkani. <laughs> in Tantric Buddhism, the word dharkini has a number of different uh, meanings. In fact, in Tantric Buddhism, they sometimes talk about the worldly so when. Padmasambhava is teaching the Darkanis in the cremation grounds. He's teaching the worldly Darkanis, the Dharma. That's not the same as Vajrayogani and Darkani is the ideal disciple. So again, be clear on the different usages. But I'm certainly going to be using the term darkani more as having the meaning of kachari. Kachari, another Sanskrit word, and it's synonymous with darkani. Kachari Kachari means one who moves through the sky one who moves through space uh, the tibetans translate this as khandra. khandra, which is the usual translation of darkening meaning sky goer so she said to be the symbol of inspiration the inspiration wisdom inspiration the inspiration that 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 runs through that ripples through the vast space of shunyatar the vast uh, she's the energy and delight and inspiration that that runs through the va- that flies through the vast space space of shunyatar she's the energy if you like of reality when placed in relation to the guru she is the symbol of the archetypal disciple uh, the disciple being one who is deeply profoundly committed to the Dharma and who is filled with the inspiration to live the Dharma life, who has been sparked off by the teacher and by the lineage of teachers. The aim of our practice, the aim of our going for refuge, the aim of our training is to course in such inspiration, to be impelled by such joyous inspiration. We know how much easier Dharma practice is when there is inspiration. We know how much easier it is to live the Dharma life when the juice of inspiration is flowing, when the amrita, the nectar of inspiration is being drunk, when that charge of energy is carrying us aloft and we feel that joy, that bliss, because we've found the Dharma and we're living it fully and completely. But we also know that inspiration comes and inspiration goes. There seem to be no uh, techniques to manipulate the arising of inspiration. This is interesting. You can't manipulate the Dharkanese to dance for you and the Dharkanese to come for you. Dharkanese are notorious for turning up at the most inconvenient of times. Uh, they don't just, they're not just gonna do, come at your uh, bidding, they're, they're gonna arise right out of the blue, right out of the blue of Shunyatar. But there are conditions and practices that can open us to inspiration. There are conditions and practices associated with going for refuge, whereby we're more likely to feel the inspiration coursing through us. So I want to look at those conditions. In the Guru Yoga text that, that Bhante transmitted to us, after you've done all that visualisation of yourself as a darkening, and with the lineage above your head, you have to recite a verse at least a hundred thousand times, not in one session, fortunately, Uh, But you have to do this recitation, this verse of entreaty, asking the gurus to bless you, to follow the path, to realise reality and to work for the liberation of beings. Yes, you have to do this verse over and over and over with great intensity. And there's an instruction about how you should say this verse, that the attitude that you should use when you say this verse, it says you should say this verse, humbly, devoutly, fervently and single-mindedly. Humbly, devoutly, fervently and single-mindedly. Now these qualities, of course, describe the attitudes of the ideal disciple. And I'm using the word disciple as a translation of the word shishya in Sanskrit or shiksha in, in, in uh, Shisho or at at Sekha in Pali. Uh, the disciple, which can also mean the learner, the one in need of training. This is what it means. Who wants to learn, who wants to train, who is capable of learning and training. The word Shikshan comes from a root meaning to be capable of. You're capable of learning, capable of training, capable of learning and training for ordination, capable of learning and training when you are already an order member. Uh, there's a, a phrase of aspiration in Shantideva's uh, Bodhicaryavatara where he, he says, may all Dharma practitioners be eager for training, eager for training. In early Buddhism you might be interested to know the word uh, Sheksha is identified with the stream entrant. Uh, You only really start learning, perhaps the message is, you only really start training when when you are really going for refuge, when you've entered the stream. And if that's true of the stream entrant, then what about us on a much humbler level of spiritual development? So what are these qualities? I want to go through this humbly, devoutly, fervently, single-mindedly. So first of all, humbly. Humble. Humble. Um, The Pali word for humble is nivata. Vata means wind. Nivata means without wind. A humble person has no wind. Uh, They're not windy. They're not gaseous. Um, They're not inflated. They're not puffed up. We have it in our English language, don't we? Uh, a humble person is not an inflated person, full of themselves, they're a profoundly receptive person. It's so important, this, that that, that a real learner is somebody who's not inflated, who really is not full of themselves, who really wants to learn, wants to take in. Now you cannot do humility. If you're trying to do humility, you become you know, like Uriah Heep or somebody like that, and we're very humble, you know, and uh, it's another kind of egotism. You get the sort of style, the the, the posture of humility, which is just another form of conceit, another form of pride and arrogance. It's very, very interesting, the the Buddha's uh, insight into the nature of conceit, mana, it's the view that you are superior to others, obviously, there's conceit there. It's the view that you're inferior to others. The view where you're where you're you're assuming that others are always higher than you, always better than you. And of course, you get that inverted pride. It's also the view that you are equal to others. That's another conceit. This is George Orwell's Everybody's Equal, but some are more equal than others, and we know sometimes how. You know, people sort of insist on equality in a way that seems really aggressive. It's not, you know, true egalitarianism of Dr. Ambedkar, equal equal opportunity. It's something else. It's to do with a kind of view which is deciding how things are before the actual communication situation, before you've entered into friendly dialogue with another. Uh, Then you might naturally... know different responses will arise but that's very different from these views. So a true disciple is none of that. There's no view. There's no inflation. There's just this receptivity, this willingness to learn. In particular, learn from the lineage, from the lineage that comes down to us uh, from 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 the Buddha. There's that eagerness to learn. But where does humility come from? If you can't do humility, uh, where does it come from? Well, we can turn to the Pali Sutta, the Mangala Sutta, one of the most popular suttas, which is a very profound sutta, and in fact, the sutta that I first uh, studied with Bhante on the seminar before I was ordained. In the Mangala Sutta, you have the, uh, the phrase Garavocca Nivatocha, Garavocca Reverence and humility. Reverence and humility. Gārava meaning reverence, meaning looking up. Looking up because you've been profoundly moved by encountering that which is higher and greater than you spiritually. Quite naturally, nobody's told you about it. You've seen it, you know it. Uh, So humility arises out of reverence. You're able to look up, happy to look up, relieved to look up. Gārava comes from the root, uh, the root word gāru means weighty or heavy. You look up because something has real weight for you, real value for you, and it moves you and impresses itself upon you. Uh, And of course we have the Gārava Sutta, which Bhante has drawn to our attention on a number of occasions. The Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, looked to look up wanted to be a disciple wanted to look up and couldn't find anybody to look up to but he still nonetheless wanted to look up and revere and worship and honour and serve and he did that with the Dhamma, with reality itself. So what of us, you know, who or what are we looking up to? It's very important that we ask ourselves that. Interestingly enough the word guru is from the same root as Garava or gaurabha in Sanskrit. A guru, a real guru, not a, not a false guru, a real guru is regarded as one being weighty with qualities. And you see those qualities, you experience those qualities over a period of time. So quite naturally, you look up. It doesn't mean that you have any kind of blind faith or anything like that. It's very, very natural to you, because you've felt, you've experienced those qualities day in and day out. That's why they're a teacher for you, that's why you wish to learn from them. So humility is, is genuinely egoless. and if you can see this reflected in the iconography of Vajrayogani, she's completely naked. There's absolutely no pretense. You know Bhante said in that little commentary on the figure, she's complete sincerity. Sincerity means no pretense. Uh, The word authentic is overdone, I think, these days. Uh, But sincerity, authenticity, whatever you like, there's no pretense. She's absolutely as she is. Uh, That's what the disciple should be. Um, Apart from the bones, the bone ornaments from the cemetery that she's gathered, representing the complete renunciation of any self-interest, any self-serving, She's completely naked to the truth. Completely naked to reality. There's no covering up. There's no hiding. This is absolutely essential to the Dharma life. Uh, Absolutely essential if you're training for ordination. If you're deepening your going for refuge to the point of being ready for ordination. It's so important to be really honest about what's going on. Sometimes, you know, people can sort of you know, I'll I'll sort stuff out after ordination. There's this sort of area of my life. Or this doubt I have about Tree Ratna, or about Bounty or this, that, and the other. I'll, I'll park that. I won't let them know about that, and I'll get ordained, and it will be okay. Bad idea. Very, very, very bad idea. Not a good idea at all. Be authentic. Be truthful. Be honest about what's going on for you. It's okay if you sit back for a while, or you withdraw your ordination request. It's okay if you bring out your doubts. I mean, we won't just, you know, lie down if you have your doubts. We'll debate them with you. You know, we're we're committed disciples. That's that's how what we're like. But but honesty is so much better, uh, the truth is so much better. You notice as well in our in our painting the what the the, Alok, the painting that Arlok has done, um, and I I. I I, I don't know whether he, he got this form from a traditional image or if it's something he saw himself. She's trampling with her left foot on a green demon, a uh, crouching demon with, with, who looks a bit scaly and with, with long fingernails. Oh, and I must admit, I see this demon as the demon of envy and jealousy. Uh, Again, it's another kind of conceit, the way we compare ourselves with others, sometimes favourably, sometimes sometimes unfavourably. Vajrayogini has nothing to do with that. She's not interested in comparing herself with anybody. The only relationship that matters to her is the transcendental, is the lineage above her head. And any other kind of ego game is just trampled on, completely trampled into the ground. Secondly, devotion, and the next quality, humbly devout, devotion. Bhakti is the Sanskrit word, which means intense, loving devotion. She is red, the color of passionate devotion. All her emotions are flowing towards the Gurus above her head. All her emotions are flowing to the Three Jewels. Uh, after I was ordained, um, Banty sent me a postcard, a postcard explaining I was transcribing the seminar he did on my ordination retreat on the shepherd's search for mind, and he sent me a postcard to say that I had to transcribe absolutely every word and not leave nothing out. In other words, don't do any editing yourself. He wanted it transcribed verbatim. He was ve- verbatim. he was very exacting as a teacher in that way. And he said, that he signed off at the end of his per, uh, postcard, what a perfect weekend, the ordination retreat that we'd just been on. And in those days, we used to study Vante's postcards for messaging, <laughs> for teachings. And uh, the postcard was a painting by Magritte, René Magritte, the great uh, surrealist, of a perfectly blue sky, and floating in the sky was a golden apple, a red apple, and a blue apple. Perfectly painted apples, but one gold, one red, and one blue. And the title of the painting I, I saw was First Love. First Love. And the message was clear. It was as if he was saying, Padma Vajra, now your first love, before all other loves, are the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha. Well, this is definitely true of yogini Her first love is the Guru, is the Gurus, is the Three Jewels. That word Bhakti, the word Bhakti, can often be seen as sort of something blind or something Hindu. Actually, it's used, the word devotion is used in Buddhist texts. You find it in Shantideva very strongly. And uh, recently I've been doing a bit of a study of of Bhakti and I was looking up the, the etymology and one writer pointed out that the word Bhakti which is a very, very rich word, comes from a root to, meaning to have a share in, to have a share in, to partake in. And it's the same root as Bhagwan, which is the you know, common you know, word for divinity in, in Indian tradition, and which, of course, is used for the Buddha. The Buddha is Bhagava, Bhagavat, Bhagwan, meaning filled with all the enlightened qualities. So I like to think that what our bhakti is in, the Buddhist case, it's our share in the qualities of enlightenment, our love, our devotion to the Buddha, to the lineage of gurus, is already means, it already means that we have a share to some extent in the qualities of enlightenment. That's why we're so attracted to enlightenment, because there's something of enlightenment within us and our devotion activates those qualities even more strongly. So the disciple, Vajrayogini, represents the flow of positive emotion in the direction of enlightenment. In fact, in another place, in another lecture, Bhante says that the darkini is the embodiment of all, intensely positive, as it were, spiritual emotions. She is love, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, faith, devotion. He also said that that, uh, positive emotion is the lifeblood of the order. So the darkening is the lifeblood of the order. Devotion is the lifeblood of the order. Um, So we need to make very, very strong emotional connections with the Three Jewels, with going for refuge, with our training. This is why we have all the images, why we have puja, why we encourage very, very strong spiritual friendships, why there's so much emphasis on myth and symbol and image and, and and art and culture. You know, we can't really learn unless our emotions are very, very strongly activated. You know, the ordination training, as I'm sure you know, is not about information. There is going to be some information, as as. Pamasagra said last night, it's about catching something. And it's as much an emotional learning, an emotional education, as it is in any kind of intellectual education. You know, my schooling was an utter and complete <laughs> failure. Uh, my education, I'm, a very, I'm completely uneducated. I come from a working class family, not, not, an, un, uh, not a, um, an unintelligent family by any means. But my family didn't, my parents didn't have the opportunity for any education. My father started work at 14, Um, you know, and they they made a real life of it. They weren't uncultured, but there was no idea of learning in my family. And um, school was terribly boring, you know, because there was no emotion. The only time I came alive was when I was asked to write a story, which was very rare uh, in those days. as soon as I encountered the Dharma and as particularly listening to Vanti's lectures, I wanted to learn because the communication was full of emotion, full of image, full of story and it was vital to do with life itself. And if you mention a particular writer, a particular work, work, work of art from, you know, Western culture or even Eastern culture, wherever it came from, I was thirsty. He made it sound so interesting. So it's so important that our our emotions are powerfully involved in our Dharma Dharma life. Our heart has to be involved. Um, Bhante says that, that going for refuge is our life blood as a Buddhist. Well, in this case, devotion is the circulation of that blood. Then we're instructed in the text to say this entreaty with uh, with fervour, fervently. The etymology of the word fervour is to boil. So it means hot, ardent, passionate intensity. Vajrayogini, of course, is surrounded by flames. I didn't mention that in the description of her, but looking up over there, there she is, surrounded by flames. She's She's a blazing disciple. So the flames are her energy, her virya. In Tibetan Buddhism you also find this expression, uh, not just fervour, but they use this language of fierce faith. May I have fierce faith. (laughs) Faith for them is is nothing tepid. The fierce faith that arises from spiritual urgency. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about fervour. Spiritual urgency, sanvega, is the word in, in Pali in and Sanskrit. Uh, I've been, been, been reflecting quite a bit on this word, sanvega, this, this, particularly as it's used in the Atadānda Sutta, where the Buddha is contemplating, describing why he went forth. He goes forth, according to this story, because of the terrible conflicts going on in the world. The way people take up violence how they embrace violence and because of that they're fearful of one another and they fight one another and because of this i felt san vega i felt an overwhelming fear and urgency one writer describes san vega as aesthetic shock it's that experience of your turban being on fire as uh, the, the image that the buddha gives for the realization of dukkha and that samvega moved the Buddha to search for enlightenment. So I'm sure many of you have felt that, continue to feel this, Uh, maybe not to the degree of the Buddha, but to some degree. Well, having found the path, you give yourself to it fiercely and fervently. The red, the nakedness, the bone ornaments symbolize as well the complete freedom the, of, of Vajrayogini, the freedom of the disciple, because you've realised that the Dharma itself is liberation. This is very important, this whole language of liberation, of being completely untrammeled, of not being held in. It's so important to understand that the Buddha Dharma is all about the taste of liberation, the vimutti Rasa. And if we are serious, disciples, uh, we need to be feeling this. We need to be feeling that this path is a liberating path and feeling that liberation day by day as we're letting go of more and more imprisoning views and attitudes and responses. So fierce uh, faith, fervent faith, no holding back. And then finally, the final quality of the disciple is one-pointedly. You say this in treaty, one-pointedly. We need to be one-pointed as a disciple. Uh, the word for one-pointedness in 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 Pālyam Sanskrit is a, k- a uh, or usually translated as concentration. But it's one-pointedness, which isn't just a bit of us concentrating. It's all of our energies flowing in one direction. You could also translate it as wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly I go for refuge. We've got that phrase in the Puja. Body, speech and mind, everything is going for refuge. Everything is integrated on the path of going for refuge. So this is important because we need to learn how to bring everything onto the path, how to transform everything so it flows into the path. This is where the whole language of attraction and fascination comes in. Red isn't just the colour of passion. Red is also the colour of fascination. You have to find ways of attracting everything in you onto the path, even seducing, rather controversial language, don't misunderstand, seducing everything into you onto the path. I'm not talking about anything worldly here. I'm using this word seduce because a few of us the other night watched uh, Into Great Silence, this incredible documentary about the Carthusian monks living in uh, the Grand Chartreuse in, in the Alps. And uh, every so often they, uh, they would, they, there were these phrases from some of the verses that the monks would be reciting and chanting. And one of them was from uh, Jeremiah, the book of Jer- Jeremiah. And it just said, Lord, you have seduced me and I was seduced. Uh, Well, you know, if that's true of these Christian monks living that very devoted life, what of those going for refuge to the Dharma? You know, the ultimate truth. We need to be able to seduce everything in us onto the path. I'm not talking about anybody doing the seducing here. I'm talking about us doing this within ourselves, for ourselves. So these are some of the qualities of the disciple. The shishya, the the the, 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 the shaiksha. This is what we need to do to train, to learn, to seriously practice. Uh, this is what we need to be doing, training for ordination. It's not about learning techniques and all kinds of information. Yes, there are methods, of course, but we're talking about attitude. We're talking about attitude. The attitude that we have for everything. Uh, we're talking about much more traditional ways of, of learning, learning uh, from one another, learning about the And Of course, if it's true before ordination, it's even truer after ordination. You know, one of the dangers after ordination is that you stop training. You think you've arrived. Well, you need to intensify your training. That's why we love being involved with men who want to be ordained, because we're constantly reminding ourselves of what we need to be doing. So let's now talk about the Guru. And I won't say so much about the Guru. uh, You know, because it's more important that we concentrate on the Dhakini disciple. So above Vajrayogini sits the archetypal Guru, Padmasambhava. Vajrayogini is all action. The disciple is all action and energy. Guru Padmasambhava is utterly still. He's sitting in the Vajra cross-legged posture, the Vajrasana, full lotus, uh, sitting in reality, unmoving, no movement. He wears, Guru Rinpoche, the robes of the three yana, the robes of the Shravaka yana, the robes of the Bodhisattva yana, the robes of the Tantra yana. He wears, in other words, the robes, of all aspects of, dhar- of, of Dharma, all aspects of the Buddha Dharma, without distinction. This is very important for us, very important for Bhante. On our refuge tree, we have the teachers from all the yanas. Uh, Bhante feels this very, very strongly that we learn, that we're inspired by the entire Buddhist tradition. If you like, if we want to say that, what yana we're in, we're in Ekayana. The one yana. By the one yana, we don't mean anything sectarian. We mean that the realization that all yanas lead to Buddhahood. All yanas are about going for refuge to the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. All yanas are to, concerned with self-transcendence. Uh, the whole of life, you could say, is concerned with ekayana. In the going for refuge in prostration practice, we imagine the whole of life, our mother and father, all men and all women, all of life going for refuge. We imagine the cosmic going for refuge. All of life is, if you look deeply enough, with transcendental wisdom, moving in the direction of reality. We're making that conscious now through our act of effective going for refuge. It's a very, very profound insight. Very hard to see. So that's what we're concerned with. That's what the Guru is teaching. In this Padmasambhava, Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche is holding to his heart the Vajra, the diamond scepter, the thunderbolt. The Vajra is sort of moving out in this particular image from the heart. The Vajra is reality, it's the true teaching coming from the essence of the heart of the Guru. If the robes are the three yanas, the heart is the essence, the transcendental wordless essence of the Dharma and the Vajra is the real teaching coming out to you now, giving you what you need in this moment to put the essence of all those teachings into practice right now. This is what the Guru Principle really is. It's the principle, the Guru Principle, is the principle of learning the Dharma teaching that you need right now, at this very time, in this very moment. The teaching that communicates the very essence of all the teachings for you now but will lead you at this moment to transcend, to move in the direction of enlightenment. In that sense, the Guru is the translator of the Dharma. Bhante saw himself as a translator of the Dharma, not just moving, as it were, from east to west, or moving or, or literally translating from one language into another, but the Guru is somebody who translates from one dimension, into another. The Guru is someone who emerges, as it were, from the depths of the Dharma and brings the Dharma into relationship to our everyday needs. The the Guru is a translator in that sense. And here, there is the wonderful teaching of of a great Guru, a great Lama, the great Atisha, the great 10th or 11th century teacher, Atisha, who did so much to revive the Dharma in Tibet, the great Indian uh, teacher. Uh, he was asked on one occasion by his three senior most disciples, what is more important, being learned in the sutras and all their commentaries or the precept of the Lama? The precept of the Lama, the precept here being the essential instruction for you, the personal instruction for you now. And Atisha teacher immediately said, oh, the precept of the Lama, the es- essential instruction is more important than all the sutras and commentaries. He says, because the precept of the Lama, the essential instruction, is teaching you how to apply the teachings contained in the sutras and commentaries, how to apply those teachings in your life now. Because the Guru, the Lama, is in touch with the essence. Of the Dharma, he's also in touch with you. He knows you, he knows your situation. Uh, so, this is really, uh, really important. It's why we need people, why we need people more experienced than ourselves, why we need Kalyanamitris. The Dharma is vast, it's very, very general. It's why we need Bhattik, why we need someone who's translated the Dharma for us, the profound Dharma. Uh, for us to use in our situation in the modern world. But we need, in a a way, more than Bhante. We need Bhante's disciples to translate that for us in our experience now. People who we can be in direct communication with. This is the way, Atisha says, we make ourselves at one with the Dharma. In another, you know, the the, the teaching that follows this, um, the, 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 the disciples ask Atisha, well, what constitutes the precept of the Lama? What, in a way, what's its criteria? How do you know it's a genuine essential instruction? And Atisha more or less says, it must be to do with renunciation. It must show you how to turn away from the world, particularly the eight worldly winds that, that blow you around. It must be revealing compassion and it must be showing absolute reality. It must have those elements, but it will be showing you that in terms of your actual behaviour day to day. This is what the guru principle uh, really is. I mean, the next teaching, they, they, they ask the disciples of the teacher, what is the highest goal of the path? What should we, we be aiming for in all things? What should we have to do? Because there's so many ways talking about the Dharma and Atisha just says what you should be aiming for in everything is the essence of voidness and compassion the complete essence of the realization of emptiness combined with great compassion and then he goes on to show what that looks like in actual practice so all the time in your mind every day that's at the forefront so this is, what, uh, this is what the teacher is doing for us and of course if we're particularly alert and receptive we'll be noticing the precepts, the essential instructions. I mean it won't be necessarily that the teacher is self-consciously dishing out precepts right, left and centre. You sometimes get that in groups, don't you? How can we make this relevant? But the relevancy becomes utterly ar- artificial and meaningless because people haven't gone deeply enough into the Dharma. We're not talking about that. And the teacher is always giving precepts. I feel this with Bhante. I'm still uh, trying to understand some of the things he said to me over the years. And they were just, as it were, in casual conversations. But because of my attitude to him and because of who he is, everything is heightened. Everything has a particular meaning. But I can remember once, Well he did give me a specific precept. I'd explained to him in a letter that um, I'd been knocked around by very, very conflicting emotions, inevitably concerned with my first love affair and all that sort of thing. I was very young at the time. And he wrote me a very, very lovely letter about all sorts of things. And he said, well, the only protection against conflicting emotions and being blown about by those things and away from the Dharma. The only protection is to perform puja, to meet with spiritual friends, to do Dharma study, to meditate regularly, to practice Buddhist ethics and to give yourself in selfless service to the Dharma. And he said, if you do these things, this will lead to transcendental insight and then with that transcendental insight, you'll always be protected from conflicting, disturbing emotions. That was the precept of the Lama and I'm still practising it, still meditating on that, still trying to understand that. It was a particular teaching. It might sound very obvious to you, but it was a real gift to me, especially perhaps the last one, selfless service. So we really need now to start drawing to a, clue, to a conclusion. We are talking about the Guru and the Darkini, the Guru and the disciple, the teacher and the disciple. In the end, of course, there is union. Uh, Vajrayogini wants to unite with the Guru, and this is what happens at the end of the Guru Yoga. After entreating all the Gurus, you imagine them all descending into your own teacher on the crown of your head. You experience the teacher giving you his blessing, feeling that his blessings pervading your entire being, bearing you up, supporting him. But even that's not enough. You want initiation. He initiates you into the deeper stages of the path. And finally, the guru descends through the crown of your head. And as he descends, Gnana Amrita, the nectar of transcendental knowledge fills you up, fills you up the ideal disciple, but even that is not enough. In the end, the Guru dissolves fully into the light of the Supreme Great Bliss, the Mahasaka, and everything dissolves. Vajrayogini, yourself as Vajrayogini, the Guru, everything dissolves into the vast expanse of this Great Bliss, and then you're instructed to sit for as long as possible, without any focus. Sometimes they say, all they say is, just enjoy formless devotion, formless faith. Just abide in the nature of things, without any effort, without any pretense, without any contrivance. And then you end with a verse of aspiration. So I'm going to read you this verse. It's a prayer that Bhante translated. I recite it at the end of my meditation uh, every day. And this is how we conclude the practice. This is the aspiration of the disciple, the Dakini in relation to the Guru. O oh my own immediate holy Guru, O oh great jewel abiding within the lotus of my heart. May you never separate from me but remain inseparable. Grant me accomplishment of body, speech and mind. Throughout all births may I have an excellent guru, and from him, never separated, may I practice the holy Dharma. And fully accomplishing the good qualities of the paths and the stages, may I speedily attain the Vajradara state. From this evil mind of mine, quickly liberated, may I speedily become the Guru Buddha, and may I lead all beings, may, may I lead all beings without exception, to the Guru Buddha's abode, O oh, Holy Good Guru. As are thy body, length of life, and abode, so also may I be. Thank you very much.
0: Padma a really wonderful talk. Uh, I, I thought it was so well crafted. It was almost like you were leading us uh, in a bit of a lead meditation in the way that you evoked the Guru in the and the darkening through the description of the Guru Yoga and then ending as well. It's like something uh, emerged and was here and then has uh, dissolved. But within that, uh, really key teachings for us all as well, uh, particularly for men who've asked for ordination and uh, a good opportunity now for us Uh, this morning, for the rest of the morning, and uh, tomorrow morning as well, to look perhaps particularly at those four conditions uh, for the arising of the inspiration that we really need in order to live a a full and rich Dharma life, so that those qualities of humility, devotion, uh, fervor, and one-pointedness. So thank you, uh, Padma Vajra, for that inspiration, but also the content uh, for us as well. So we'll give Padma Vajra another round of applause.